come on in. We were just talking. Welcome to the Open Marriage Podcast, candid conversations about life, marriage, and parenting. More honesty than polyamory, but we talk about it all. I'm Summer, and I'm joined in conversation by my husband, Jason. Today's <laughs> podcast, we're going to be talking about why we've named it The Open Marriage and where the title came from, because everything's in the title. So we just want to begin there, because that was a pivotal point for us and why we're even here today talking about this. So pivotal point sounds almost too sanitized to my ear. Could you swap up pivotal point for rock bottom? Rock is bottom. that the lowest point we've ever scraped against in our relationship, do you think? Mm, that's really tough, you know, because you, we, <laughs> there's, there's some a, real... There's a lot of com- some competing... <laughs> there's uh, some shipwrecks sort of, down there. Not and not a lot, but I think when you when you ask yourself like, oh, have there been other rock bottoms without even knowing them, calling to mind specific ones, there's just remnants of feelings of like, oh, we've been here before. But I think that was one of one of our I say last, not that we'll never have another one, but it just seemed to be the culmination of of many. Like it's like we kept ramming into and having these collisions and that just seemed to be one where it was like we're not going to do this again it felt a little bit like bankruptcy where there's you've been running a relational deficit for a while and but you can kind of convince yourself that like you can still function and then there's a certain point at which somebody from the bank shows up at your house to repossess your car or hammer an eviction notice into your front door. And there's that moment where you can't avoid it anymore. It just forces you out of denial. Something is really painful. Denial is the only medicine that you have and in terms of numbing out if you're not. I mean, obviously, there are other drugs of choice for denial and numbing out that sensation, um, alcohol, drugs, infidelity, all of those kinds of things. But yeah, in terms of our case, it just got to a point where it was very obvious that the show was about to to wrap up (laughs) in terms of our marriage, uh, if there wasn't some drastic turnabout. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, lo- I love that comparison to bankruptcy. We definitely had a, a relational bankruptcy. And yeah, the account had been draining for a long time. That was around September 2017. And I think we have very different experiences of that time. But to get us started, at least what comes to mind for me was one particular conversation where I had worked up a lot of nerve. And there's a lot of processing and backstory, but to keep it short, I remember sitting in the bed with you and having a conversation and and actually feeling quite connected in that conversation, like we were being pretty honest about a few things or, or finally connecting where we hadn't in a while. And I don't know where I got the balls to do this, but... I just 
was able to be honest with the fact that maybe we might need an open relationship. I know the learning curve I was on. I don't know where I personally got the courage. (laughs) Well, I think the courage was when there is a disaster going on, like people just go totally YOLO and they're like, well, (laughs) it's the last night on earth. You know, it's kind of like when it just seems like things are about to wrap up, you just feel like it doesn't matter. Like you can just throw anything out there. Hmm. I feel like that was kind of you just like, whatever, like this is almost like beyond saving. So I can just say whatever I want. And you said, I'm feeling kind of trapped here. And I think I'd like to open this up. No, I remember the line. I can't believe we're actually being this honest, like I am anticipating my vulnerability hangover. The line that just felt like a knife just plunged into my chest was like, you'd been acknowledging the fact that your kind of desire for sex or for a an intimate relationship had just like been non-existent for some time so you acknowledged that and you said at this point in my life I feel like I am finally ready to reconnect with the sexual part of myself but I don't want it with you I want to reconnect with it but I would prefer that it be with someone else and I want that to be an open marriage and and for me that was I knew what you were saying, but it sounded like you asking me for a divorce. It's like what we talk about when we talk about love, that Raymond Chandler title, that short story collection, what we're talking about when we're talking about sex. Like you were saying, like, I want intimacy, but I don't want it from this marriage because I don't really want anything from this marriage because I'm out of here. Like, I'm ready to move on. Like I've kind of given up on this marriage, meeting my needs. Mm. So that was the moment where it was just, oof. Mm. How's that for heavy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of the goals with the podcast is we've had every conversation that is going to come up. But time has passed and there's always multiple facets and perspectives. And so part of sharing this is sharing what we experience, but also we always hope to learn something new from revisiting it. And it's still, you know, we don't think about it at all. And we, we joke about this conversation regularly, but to sit down and kind of, I wouldn't say we joke about it (laughs) to confront it again. It it does feel like a bit of a bruise. Does it? I think it does a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we have enough distance from it now that it almost feels like, you're talking about two different people because our relationship was gangrenous in that, at that very low point, but it's made a, they sound presumptuous, but I feel like it's made a full recovery. Like we have, to my mind, a very like, mutually gratifying relationship and a lot of the codependence that was causing that spiral has been alleviated because I've become more mentally healthy and self-sufficient where I'm not, I mean, for me, like sex was always, not in every single, obviously I, I want to avoid any blanket statements about, it, but there were plenty of times where it, it was a numbing agent and it, life just feels really heavy right now. And I just want something that feels good. And so it takes me away from my feeling rather than moving me deeper into it. And I think sex can, 
it can function in both of those ways. It can be an exit or an entrance into intimacy, uh, depending on how you're, I'm going to say using it, but what your relationship to it is. Why do you think you used it that way? Uh, well, obviously it's, it's all retrospective because so much of my life has been a vacuum of self-awareness of like emotional self-awareness of just operating and not knowing why I was making certain decisions. And I, I don't think that's any kind of slight on myself. I think in everyone's life, maybe if you want to be generic about it, like the first half of your life is just a kind of autopilot in the cockpit. You're kind of behind the eyes and you're, and there's no controls. There's no levers. There's no steering wheel. Like you almost feel like kind of things are happening automatically and you're a bit of a spectator on your own life. It's not until you reach a certain level of self-awareness and mindfulness where you realize that you don't have to be constantly moving from one impulsive thought and impulsive action to the next, that you can be reflective like in the moment and mindful of what's happening. That's the experience I've begun to have more often in the past two or three years. I mean, definitely after that excruciating low point, I just began to, instead of running from my feelings or just having a third glass of whiskey or whatever it is, mindfulness is all about sitting with sensations and being non-judgmental and just observing them. And that has been the real breakthrough for me. I'm not saying I do that perfectly, but once you start to do that, even just one time out of 10, like 10% of the time you are acting in a non-automatic way, then you start to feel like I must have my hands on the controls in some respect. I mean, it's a whole separate, you know, 10 hour conversation, but I'm not entirely persuaded by the idea that we have free will. However, I just, I, it's been such dramatic departure moving into my fourth decade of life and just feeling like I'm starting to see patterns and I'm starting to be less afraid of negative, like negative sensations and fearful emotions and fears of rejection. And that's been an incredible departure point. Do you think that conversation was the instigator or was that a point along the way for you early on in that process? Because I know the timing lines up somewhat, but from your perspective, where does it fall? Was that the first thing that just like kicked over the dominoes? Yeah. Yeah. Really? I th you know, that felt like dozing off behind the wheel having a micro sleep as like it's I think Matthew Walker is the author he refers to in his book why we sleep because these when we become sleep deprived we have these micro sleeps where your body literally shuts down for one or two seconds and you become unconscious because it's trying desperately to get some sleep but I felt like I had a micro sleep like at the wheel of a car moving 80 miles per hour down the interstate and then just coming to and like some just terrifying like veering into another lane where you were about to veer into like the spinning wheels of an 18 wheeler just this terrifying 
uh, existential moment of risk and of like, I'm about to lose the things that are most important to me. And it's become a cliche in Lifetime movies. And like, this is the rock bottom moment where you realize that you need to try to save your marriage or all this stuff. And, but I guess those things are cliche because they happen in real life. <laughs> and I just remember being plunged into a moment of decision of I'm going to give up and just decide that this is over and it's too late and I fucked up too badly and I just need to let it go because she's, because of what you had said, that killer line, I want to finally get back in touch with this thing, but I just, I want to do it with someone else. And I, This thing, you mean my sexuality? Yeah, this part of you, like this passion. Yeah. Like I, I intentionally use vague language there because it's like not even just yeah. about the sex. It's mm. about appetite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because sex You're is right. just like, yeah. And you had no appetite. Like the way that we interacted at that point in our relationship, you didn't enjoy being around me. You didn't want to be around me. There was no appetite for me in any way. If anything, that thought was slightly repulsive. So when I realized that that was gone, my first thought was, I don't see any life in our relationship. I feel like it is a cadaver, but I am either going to do the ER cheesy thing of like, give me 40 cc's and like get the defib paddles (laughs) and like try to slap them on the chest and try to bring it back to life and fight. Damn it. Don't give up on me. Like repetitions doing like the chest compressions. Um, Or I can just give up and let it die. A big part of me thought letting it die might be the only option because those were my two choices when it was that dire. I had taken three weeks off of work at this stage. Different events happening, almost like different storylines in my life where I had just reached a point of feeling very victimized by life and feeling very resentful of a few very key people in my life. Um, And you were one of those. And that was this theme of, God, she doesn't care about me. She doesn't love me. She never has sex with me. She, all of these things. But there were other people in my life as well, like others close to me who I just felt like, man, you screwed up my life. All of this, this kind of victim kind of language. And when you feel victimized, it breeds this helplessness and this despondency. I'm a victim I have no agency. There's nothing I can do to redeem this situation because I'm a victim. And nothing I do can actually change anything in the world. I don't have any agency. Interestingly, in the book, Creative Confidence, they're talking about creativity and entrepreneurial innovation design. It's the Kelly brothers who started IDEO, the design agency. It was so fascinating when I read that book, and this was shortly after this period. The very first thing they talked about is... If you are going to make something, write a book, start a business, design a new MRI machine, the most important ingredients is a sense of agency. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what on earth? I just was not expecting them to go there. I was expecting them like, you know, you need to get inspired and you need to like, you know, the kind of standard creativity stuff. But yeah, they just touched on that point of if you don't feel like you can change anything about the world or your circumstances which is synonymous with victimhood, then you're not going to try to change anything. You're not going to try to build a business. You're not going to try to write a book because you don't 
have any belief that you're capable of it or that the world's going to benefit from it because you have such a low opinion of yourself. This was during those three weeks. And because I didn't have an alternative place to, to live when I was taking that sabbatical from work to try to get my head right. And I had asked you to move out. You had. Yeah, I know this just it just gets cheerier the more the picture gets rounded <laughs> out. I've told my boss that I need to take some time off. I'm taking three weeks out, try to think through some stuff and figure some stuff out. And you're like, cool, you can't stay here. You need to go find somewhere else to live. And Right. Can I interject here? Yeah, or will that interrupt uh, your flow? No, 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 no. I think just for the audience who's like, yeah, that woman's a bitch. <laughs> Sometimes true. Sometimes and also we like had it. just come back from a week-long oh, yeah, yeah. dream holiday for our family. We had never been on any holiday like this where we got to go to Sicily with some dear friends and stay in a villa. And... It's just unfortunate, the timing, but where you were at, you were moping and solitary and solo and not present for the kids or myself or the group fun even. And it felt so challenging to have just spent that time with you and felt like it had been pooped on and then come home and you say, well, now that we're home, I'm going to stay home and be with you more. And I was like, oh, hell no, you can, you're out of here. We're not doing that for another week or two. I mean, honestly, a large part of it is just knowing, I know you need that space, which is why the first response is cool. I didn't think it was a good idea. You did it anyways. And that, that was the first time where I was like, okay, well, he knows better what he needs. And it was almost a small standing up for yourself that I hadn't seen before. But then it also, it allowed me to stand up for myself and say what I needed, which was not your energy, not your presence around while you were going through that. Because I don't know what was going on with our dynamic, but it really wasn't working at that time. Yeah. When you are that depressed, you become a black hole of energy that just sucks orbiting planets into its gaping mouth. It is this bizarre thing where depression and egocentrism are perfectly overlapping, like a full eclipse. Like the more depressed that I got, the smaller my world got because depression like creates this perpetual contraction when you're concentrated on your victimization or your perceived, I'm, I'm going to even say perceived victimization because a lot of times these things are shaped by the story that we tell about them. And I had written this story in my mind about like all of the, the people who had victimized me and the wife that wasn't having sex with me, the, the, the mother who like didn't support me in the way that I wanted to be supported as I was becoming disillusioned with my Christian faith and all of these like very acute stressors. My world just collapsed in and I, it was like Andre the Giant being squeezed into a tiny little dollhouse room or something. The world felt like it was that closed in on me because I could only see myself. I was, it was so egocentric. Coming out on the other side of that, I just, that was my own. It's so interesting because all these rock bottom moments kind of like clustered together. And it was in that moment where I knew that I needed to do something drastic. And that was when I made the decision to take that time out of work because I, I felt like if I didn't, then 
something bad was going to happen. Like, no, I didn't have any, I didn't have any thoughts of self-harm during that time, but I just felt like I was going to have some kind of breakdown or something. And mm. so, mm. yeah. So when you said like, okay, you can take that time, but, and thank you for acknowledging that it was a standing up for myself because it was very uncomfortable to ask for that time. When we got back from that trip and then you were like, you know, I'm kind of over this and all this stuff. And I just had to confront, I had all this extra time, you know, all this bandwidth to like dwell with the heartache of life sucks and now I'm about to die. <laughs> like, it, it felt like that. I mean, that obviously sounds hilarious. Life sucks and then you die. Like it did feel like life sucked because I was so depressed. And then my wife is like, oh, by the way, like saying it without saying it, like I want a divorce. And and then now I have nothing to distract me because I don't have work to distract me. I don't have like all these comforts have been stripped away. So we did sleep in the same bed during that three week kind of at home separation. But even when I was in the bed, I wasn't sleeping that much. I think I probably slept one and a half, two hours a night because I just was so heartbroken because I thought that was the end of our relationship that I was just lying awake. Like a funny little side note, and I won't get too derailed, but I remember my older brother on Facebook Messenger group, he put a video in there of our childhood bunk bed that we'd grown up in. Like his two boys were were out of that stage and had grown up and were in separate bedrooms. And so the bunk bed had kind of finally outlived its usefulness. Like it had gone through so many hand-me-downs. We'd grown up in it. Then we slept in it in college. We moved up, stayed in the same room and slept in that same bunk bed. And then his kids inherited and they slept in it. It was like this totemic object of childhood and closeness and late night talks with somebody you care about, almost like a marriage, that intimacy of sleeping in the same bed with somebody. The cosmos decided that this would be the moment where he should share a video of him burning it in their in his little backyard campfire kind of basin hmm. and i was it was so such a blow when i was at my lowest point that i remember just being very unhinged by it and just like so sad i think i, I had teared up just seeing it burning and all of the feelings that went along with that that i said something like just i don't want to see this or this is terrible or something and then uh, my older brother's like then girlfriend and, and now fiance, she was totally off put. <laughs> like she found it so off putting, like how I was overreacting to this bunk bed burning. She's like, it's just a bunk bed. Like I can't even, I can't even with this right now. Like why are, <laughs> why, you know how she's so not, emo boys. She, she's so not, no nonsense. It's just like, why are you freaking crying your eyeliner out? Like <laughs> your little emo kind of eyeliner over this like childhood bunk bed being it's just a bunk bed it's like get over it but it was just I don't think she knew all of the context of like the moment where I was seeing this like moving the conversation on the I remember going down and I wrote a letter to you I was writing a lot of like I was working on a memoir kind of doing a lot of this processing of some of my life story and I was doing a lot of writing during that three-week time. That was a lot of my kind of personal therapy was getting these feelings out and in a really raw way. And so when I started writing that, it was almost like just another Google Doc open of like just another chapter in that in that story. Like I think at that point, 
I might have even just thought, oh, this is just part of the book because every other page has been like, you know, the most raw, you know, confessional kind of thing. But the interesting thing about that page and the way that that started is that of how simple the emotion was stated. Because in the rest of the book, you know, I like flowery language. I like analogies. I like florid prose. I like, you know, multisyllabic words. I like, I mean, I just, I just like that complexity. But the opening of that chapter or that letter, which it was, because I was addressing you in it, was I am sad. It was like three monosyllabic words, almost like I had reverted back to childhood and it it just opened with I am sad. And I think that was such an important way of like I needed to just strip away all of the grown up kind of over complicating my feelings about like everything. Cause I think I realized that that too was a defense mechanism. Mm by turning everything into art and by like trying to make everything ornate and beautiful, it was a layer of protective, like beautifully shiny and ornate tortoise shell. But it was still a protective shell that I was like, that just kind of allowed me to not fully feel that core searing hot emotion. I should have written, I feel sad, because when I'm reflecting on it, at that point, that was my identity was, I am sad. I This is who I am. I am heartbreak. I was like the, the fight club quote of like, I am Jack's guilty conscience or whatever. Like, I was like, I am sad. I am heartbreak. I am guilt. I am shame. I am at my end. I am all these things. But really, it was just a deep feeling. So I should have written I feel sad but by stating it like a child like writing a message I remember Frederick Buechner my my favorite writer he's influenced me more than any other writer or thinker by a thousand miles but when he was dealing with his father's suicide he went to some kind of therapy session and the therapist this was years later he was like an elderly man already at this stage and his father had had uh, committed suicide when Frederick was like a child. So this was decades, decades, decades behind him. But he's still, nobody ever heals from that kind of trauma. But the therapist asked him to write a message to his dad and to write it with his non-dominant hand. And so he wrote a message to his dad, like, I miss you. And he wrote it in his with his left hand. I think it was his left hand, it was his non-dominant hand odds on or that's probably (laughs) correct but he wrote this message and I don't remember exactly what it said but it was of course intensely vulnerable but it was also in a child scrawl and there was something about setting aside your strong adult I'm strong and I can you know handle my shit and like all this stuff it's like I'm a kid I can't handle anything the world is too big and scary for me and by being able to write that, like that was one of the ways that he was able to start healing from that trauma. And then he ended up writing a book called The Wizard's Tide, which is a story about two children, a brother and a sister. And it's a very thinly 
barely fictionalized account of him as a child, very thinly fictionalized, but and by writing that story, and he told it from the child's perspective, and and so that was another another step of his therapy of processing that and reliving it. Like we've talked about with that book, I can't remember what it was, like Waking the Tiger or something like that, that book about trauma that I was telling you about, uh, about how movement is like one of, we have to go back and we have to walk through that trauma and relive it, almost act it out. And that's what art does when you're, when you're going and writing about those most painful moments of your life. In writing that letter to you, I was Waking the Tiger, like, which and the title of that book just basically refers to animals when they are about to be eaten, they go completely catatonic and still and lifeless uh, as a way of, it's a evolutionary adaptation that allows them to be eaten without feeling it, which is a gruesome thought. And that's kind of how the viciousness of nature kind of turns over in the most humane way possible. It's almost like getting some kind of anesthetic before you die. It's like a natural anesthetic from nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that animals, when they finally realize that the existential threat, if it's the antelope, that that lion has gotten distracted and gone out, off after some other prey or whatever it is, the animals experience this like lurching movement. Like, not only do they have this natural like kill the car battery kind of moment, but they also have the like, you know, sort of roll in second gear and pull the you know clutch up to like jerk and it literally looks like that they spasm and they lurch back to life and they come out of the trauma and then they proceed with their life and they're not wounded and traumatized the entire time that is what i felt like writing i mean mine wasn't quite that dramatic in that instant like i need to tap into some of that animal wisdom or something (laughs) or like you know but that book is about tapping into that animal wisdom of like going back how stepping through that trauma whether it was a car accident or a surgery or something that was so frightening that you shut down and became helpless and just anesthetized and numbed yourself physically to like not feel the pain of that death um like how do you walk back through that and you have to relive it and that's why i think it's so dangerous to studiously avoid your trauma obviously you you can't like plunge like cannonball back into it you need to be guided and ease back into it but that is how you move through it and then heal from it that's and that's where the healing begins you're not healed immediately but the healing starts at that point and so the i am sad uh letter that i wrote to you which i think stretched to something like eight pages it was a very long excruciating letter it just lays out in like the most raw language i resent you for this i was like and you like I had this huge victory of like publishing my first book and you didn't give a shit. And, and then now I'm like having this new, like overcoming of like starting my own business and you're annoyed at, that I'm doing that and stressed out about that. And you don't believe in me and you don't have sex with me. And like, there's no passion and all. And like, it was just this laundry list of like, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. And I resent you for all of this stuff. But that was the kind of the first half of it. But then it like really softens this like aggressive like victim energy to just taking ownership of I have been very derelict in taking care of this relationship and showing up to it and all of these things. And I 
I think I actually moved to like, I don't blame you for where you are. Like, I mean, this is my doing. It's, it's really interesting how you can go from one extreme of victimhood to one extreme of like responsibility <laughs> and owning. It reminds me of that incredible Liz Gilbert quote of any journey to healing or self-discovery starts with owning one's bullshit. Mm. And I probably paraphrase that, but that was so it, that was so true for me in that case. And at the end, I just said, if this relationship is beyond saving, then I want you to know that I love you so much. And I genuinely want like whatever comes next for you to be really gratifying and like all of the things like that whole, I want to come to life and I want to have an appetite again, but I don't want it with you. And it was just me saying like, if we can't have that in this relationship and we need, this needs to not just become an open marriage, but so open that the tether between us like is completely dissolved and, and you just move on to your next relationship. Like I will be so good to the kids. I'll be like all of these things just like, I'm going to show up and maybe it's too late for this relationship, but I at least want to show up so that the rest of my life is lived in a healthy way and that I'm taking care of the people I love. And at that point I thought that I was just doing it for me because I didn't think that our relationship was going to survive that moment. Mm. Yeah. I I remember that moment we were, we had met in the Fumbali cafe. We hadn't talked for those three weeks that you were home and during that time I had had a therapy session where I just I just felt like that was it like there was no saving this and I remember calling my mom which I've I don't think I've ever put that question to her but just like almost needing to know like what's ahead for me if if this is the way it goes and and I don't know if that was early on in those three weeks or what, but in a relatively short period of time, I just remember you had asked to meet there. I didn't know what we were going to talk about at all. We, Like I said, we hadn't been communicating, so all bets were off about what was about to go down. <laughs> and you didn't read that letter to me, but I think you read a part of it. Or or no, you just, you just told me about it. And yeah. But some of the clarity you had around yourself, where you were at, and your view on our relationship, I just remember it dawning like the morning sun over some really dark shadows of just things I hadn't been able to put a name to, but I knew were there. I knew they were lurking and and it just felt so good to the person who had the light and could see it clearly to finally name it and expose it. It was just like, oh, yes, that is what has been going on. That's what's there. And and then I remembered the the moment of just total freedom. You finished all of it with the open acceptance of basically, I, I release you. I don't remember your exact words, but... It wasn't, I'm asking for a divorce, or I think that's a good idea. It was just, you're just free. Whichever way you want to go, this is, like you said, I want I want you to feel this way. I want you to have this life, and you can find that whichever way you need it. And 
that to me, I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't even care in that moment. I was just so high as a kite that I was free. My emotional experience was just one of breaking, breaking out of that old paradigm and not feeling stuck, which begins to lead us into the what and the why of what it felt like for me, what this period, time period was for me. And it's, it's very different, our unique experiences. But I am conscious that that is a lot to sink in and, and to sit on. And so even in real time, realizing like this is not something we need to rush. And so thankful to revisit this with you and hear the story from your perspective very uninterrupted. I know people are probably wondering, like, is she still there? <laughs> but I really value listening and letting the whole thought come out and unwind and see what's there before you interrupt and try and assume, oh, I know where this is going, or I know that, or it's illuminating to even practice that with this familiar conversation again. So thank you for sharing so honestly about that. The fact that Summer and I are sitting here, you know, opening our marriage, the fact that we're sitting here right now and that we've weathered that and that we have a, that we've found the intimacy on the other side of that, that we have does feel almost unwarranted and miraculous to me, but we're not special. <laughs> like, mm. I think that's a important wrapper to put on the, on the conversation is that this is not us because we're the most you know, emotionally self-aware people, obviously, as this conversation should demonstrate, <laughs> like nobody was less self-aware than, and I'll speak for only for myself, than me mm -hmm. going through that period of time, like Mr. Professional Victim and like, I'm the victim of everybody I've ever known and gratitude can't survive. It just cuts off all ox oxygen to the gratitude impulse. And now I don't even think it's a cheap kind of mental health that I've found where it's like, oh, everything's great. It's but I just feel grateful all day long. It sounds like I've had some kind of conversion experience, but um, I have, I suppose, like, but in a secular way, because uh, I haven't, you know, become a believer again in the, in the religious sense, but I just feel so much gratitude to all the people that I was resentful of, to you. I'm grateful to you for, you know, sticking with me and putting aside those grievances of the ways that I had been really unloving and unkind to you. And I'm grateful, you know, to my mom who had unintentionally, you know, done some things. Well, she had done some things that were well-intentioned, but that were very hurtful to me that, and, and now I'm able to just really look past those things to be grateful for the million ways in which she loved me and sacrificed almost like self-immolated to like, you know, make sure that I had the best life that she could imagine making for me and, and all these. Yeah. And I just feel that for every part of my life now, I feel grateful. Things have kind of restructured at work. I'm, you know, which leaves me in the musical chairs game, kind of leaves me without a chair. And so, I've, you know, trying to figure out what's next for me on the work front. And yet I'm also not resentful of that employer. Like I'm just so thankful for all the investments, all the the experiences I got to have during that time and whatever comes next is is going to be great. It's going to be, you know, just, uh, yeah. And, and so 
yeah, all that, that gratitude would just be non-existent if I hadn't emerged. I do feel like you were a midwife in a way of you kind of helped me be born out of the cocoon of that victim crouch in on myself like that that embryo kind of that's just like squashed into that tiny little <laughs> tiny little sack and then just being born and just getting to like stretch my arms and kind of come out and have a good cry <laughs> like, <laughs> you know sc- like squint in the daylight oh my god I haven't I haven't seen the light of day in a while I've been so up my own ass and like in my own head <laughs> um and so yeah it's a it's a good day mm, it is a good day exposing this idea of the open marriage these things are very out there and people will be like oh my gosh what what are they doing they're gonna blow the shit up with <laughs> talk like that and it reminds me and brings me back to the work of the relationship is between the two people that are in it and it cannot be judged so just be very very careful because you need to have those conversations together and everyone's got a different take on it. Remembering that it's important for the two people in the relationship to navigate it together and taking outside wisdom, but not taking outside judgment because we, we needed to go through that conversation. We needed to go so far to the extreme of having an, talking about the possibility of an open marriage, which I never would have thought would ever come out of my mouth. I mean, <laughs> I am liberal, but I just, that never crossed my mind. So I surprised myself. You do have like a hippie name, Summer. I do. So, I know. and as one of those like Woodstock flower children, like, <laughs> open marriage, yeah. Like <laughs> Maybe it's been in the cards all along, but You know, I just challenge you, like, don't be afraid of the tough conversations or be afraid the whole Susan Jeffers thing, feel the fear and do it anyways. Like just acknowledge this is scary. I don't want to do this. I don't know how I'll be received, but realizing I trust this person. I care about this relationship. I'm invested and we'll just talk our way through it. We will literally keep having the conversation until we get to a place where we both see it and we both can hold it comfortably, the different sides and perspectives. So here's one to get you started. (laughs) Can I be close to you? Can I be close to you? Thank you so much for listening and sharing your time with us. Let's all keep the conversations going. If you're curious for more of ours, subscribe and hear it all. Until next time, be welcome.